I'm Joel Parker, and this is Hell on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 17th, 2015. Coming up, an interview with Eugene Harris, author of Ancestors in Our Genome, a recent book describing the use of molecular biology to elucidate the evolutionary story of modern humans. I'm Beth Bennett. And we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Cancers are readily visible with positron emission tomography, or PET. Radioactively labeled glucose is often used as a tracer because tumor cells tend to require large amounts of glucose. PET can't be used to image brain tumors, however, because normal brain cells are also highly dependent on glucose. In recent work published last week in the journal Science and Translational Medicine, researchers from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor showed that radio-labeled glutamine yields clear images of brain tumors in mice and humans. Using the glutamine tracer, cancer cells can be distinguished from normal brain cells and even from tumors that are no longer growing. New research shows that a burst of evolutionary innovation in the genes responsible for electrical communication among nerve cells in our brain occurred over 600 million years ago in a common ancestor of humans and the sea anemone. According to lead researcher Timothy Jegla, an assistant professor of biology at Penn State University, it appears that animals such as sea anemones and jellyfish are using the same channels that shape electrical signals in our brains in essentially the same way. The implications of this research is that many of the mechanisms we use to control electrical impulses in our neurons were not present in the earliest nervous systems. A paper describing the research will appear this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. This past Friday, the USDA approved what will be the first genetically modified apples to reach the U.S. market. The apples were developed by Okanagan Specialty Fruits Incorporated, a Canadian company, and are designed to resist browning after being sliced or bruised. Even among broad opposition, including a petition by the Organic Consumer Association, the USDA insisted that the fruit was not likely to have any impact on the human environment or pose plant pest risk to agriculture. Currently, the Food and Drug Administration has no mandatory review process for genetically engineered foods. In a statement released by Okanagan, the Apple developer, they state that the fruit has undergone rigorous review and are likely the most tested apples on the planet. On Thursday, learn how to launch a rocket, and why not have a cocktail, too? The Denver Museum of Nature and Science is hosting this Science Lounge event, for the Over 21 crowd, this Thursday, February 19th, from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. at the museum. More information is available at dmns.com, and click on Adults, and that's under the Learn tab. And this Friday, the Fisk Planetarium will be screening a film called The Craziest Creatures on Earth. The movie, an exploration of life on Earth that lives in particularly extreme environments, will be accompanied by a Q&A with astrobiology grad student Graham Lau. 
That's this Friday, February 20th at 7 p.m. at the Fisk Planetarium on the CU Boulder campus. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Today I'll be speaking with Eugene Harris, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and Geology at Queensboro Community College, part of the City University of New York, about his new book, Ancestors in Our Genome. Good morning, Dr. Harris. We are delighted to have you with us this morning. Thank you, Beth. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. And I loved your book. I'm, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's fascinating. My background is in population and evolutionary genetics, and I understand okay. you are a molecular anthropologist. Maybe you could take just a moment to explain to our listeners what that means. Okay. Uh, a molecular, anth- a molecular anthropology is actually one of the subfields of biological anthropology, which includes things like uh, paleoanthropology and primatology, and so molecular anthropologists restudy um, the relationships amongst different species of primates um, using um, DNA evidence and so forth. We also look at the evolution of uh, our own species, um, the emergence of anatomically modern humans, and so forth. So our questions are really uh, looking at the genetic evidence for our evolution. And I understand that one of the tools that you use is constructing both what are called gene trees and species trees. Maybe you can explain to our listeners how the evolutionary relationships based on these two types of trees differ and how they're similar. Right. Well, um, in my book, actually, I bring up um, and make a distinction between gene trees and species trees for an important reason. Um, uh, If we take the field of molecular anthropology back about 25 years ago, we didn't understand the relationships amongst the African great apes, the chimpanzees, gorillas, uh, and their relationship to humans. In fact, um, morphologists had um, long thought that chimpanzees and gorillas were most closely related, and then humans were uh, a group um, um, that was related to them. Um, But then, actually, Technologies uh, came about in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, which allowed labs to sequence individual genes. And, uh, and these genes, that is determining the A's, C's, G's, T's, the order of those in particular genes. And these genes kind of trickled in uh, slowly uh, into laboratories. And they were able to build gene trees from the homologous genes that we find in humans, chimps, and gorillas. And so some of these trees, based on single genes, uh, showed a relationship where chimps and gorillas were, uh, seemed to be most closely related. But then others came along which showed that humans and chimps were more closely related than they were to um, gorillas. And then yet a third alternative tree uh, popped up in which a human gene seemed to be most closely related to the gorilla, and the chimpanzees fell outside uh, this group. So we were in a quagmire, and we called this the uh, hominoid trichotomy problem after the name of the superfamily for the ape group. And um, 
it, it turned out for this problem to be resolved, we were going to need a lot more DNA evidence. And uh, in the late 90s, um, um, enough DNA sequence data was accumulated that Mary Ellen Ruvalo at Harvard University was able to conduct a study in which she, she found that the distribution of gene trees at that time suggested that we were indeed most closely related to, um, to, uh, to chimpanzees. Um, and now it's very interesting that, um, you know, the full genomes of uh, chimpanzees and gorillas and humans, even orangutans, are um, uh, determined. Uh, that's the three billion letters that make up their genome. So we're able to actually look at tens of thousands of gene trees along the entire genome, and we're able to find out uh, something very interesting, and that is for two-thirds of the human genome, our genes show a, a close, close similarity to chimpanzees. But for about 15% of our genome, we're actually, we have genes that are most closely related to gorillas. And for another 15%, well, chimpanzees and gorillas are each other's closest relative. And so do you, yeah. do you speculate or believe or even have evidence, perhaps, mm -hmm. that some of those genes from the other hominoid species, like, mm -hmm. actually not hominoid, sorry, but primate species like right. chimps and gorillas, would have been selected in mm -hmm. our human ancestors to retain that particular primate nature, that is, that the gorilla genes might have some selective advantage to us as humans? Right. Well, that's uh, an interesting question, and the science is... Uh, has really not addressed it that closely. However, we do believe that it's possible that some of our genes that we share close relationship with gorillas, um, so forth, may have some kind of phenotypic effect in us, and they could fall into functional regions of our genome. So it's quite possible, but we haven't pinpointed yet um, what those features are. And can you talk briefly about how you use the DNA sequence data to determine that there has been natural selection. This is just amazing to me that we can look at this uh, basically statistical data and mm -hmm. infer past events of natural selection. Oh, yeah. Well, um, yes, it is an exciting area of research. For the first time, we're able to uh, scan entire genomes and look for those particular places that have been targeted by natural selection in the past. And we can do that to try to discover uh, human adaptations after we separated from chimpanzees. And we can also start to look at those adaptations which differentiate different geographical populations of humans. And the way that we do it is by looking for certain signatures of natural selection, kind of footprints that are stamped into the genome in particular places that can uh, give us a, a sign that that's, that region was targeted by natural selection. And so scans have been done using the chimp and human genome and then comparing between genomes of different people in different locations of the world. And we're starting to discover uh, various genes and categories of genes that have been under selection. And essentially what you do then is you take the two sequences for the same gene, say mm -hmm. from um, if we were interested in comparing two different human populations. We would mm -hmm. take sequence data from those two populations and look for differences in that exactly. same gene. Exactly. So just to give you an example, um, there are ongoing studies in which people are comparing um, uh, people 
that are adapted to high altitudes. And so what you do is you take a genome from a, uh, a lowlander Tibetan, let's say, and a highlander Tibetan, and then you compare those genomes and you look for signatures of natural selection. And actually, uh, when you do that, you do find certain genes that seem to uh, be selected in the population living in the high altitudes. So this gives us some way to find where the genes are, and we don't always know what the gene's function is, but it's a starting point. After you reveal this selection of signature, uh, you have a candidate gene that you can then explore the function of and then build a story about how that gene helps those people survive at high altitudes, you know. That's fascinating, Eugene, and I'm sure in Boulder many people would be interested in those high-altitude kinds of adaptations <laughs> right. because exactly. there's so many of these high-altitude climbers in this town. But it right. sounds like it's still a bit early to try to determine exactly what the adaptation is. Well, and it's interesting from uh, when we're talking about high high. Uh, Adaptation for high altitudes, um, they've looked at uh, Andean populations, we've looked at uh, Tibetan populations, and it seems, and even highland Ethiopian populations, and it seems like they've had different ways genetically of adapting to these different uh, high altitude conditions, which is an example of what we call evolutionary convergence. Yes, exactly. Um, so fascinating. Um, That's incredibly yeah. interesting. And just a reminder to our listeners, this mm -hmm. is the How on Earth KGNU Science Show, and I'm Beth Bennett. We're talking with Eugene Harris about his new book, Ancestors in Our Genome. And we've specifically been talking about adaptations to different environments. Do you have some other examples of adaptations to different environments? I find this just amazing. I have uh, a, yeah, a very interesting example, um, and one which has a very strong footprint of selection in our genome is the adaptation of northern Europeans and some other populations to digest uh, uh, lactose in fresh milk, actually. Um, the thing that's interesting is that um, all of us have the ability to digest lactose until about the age of five, and then the gene uh, turns off in most of the populations around the world, except in northern, uh, northern European populations in which the gene lactase, which codes for the enzyme, remains switched on okay, into adulthood. So they have no problems um, digesting lactose and fresh milk. Um, and so... When you look at the region of the genome uh, near the lactase gene, you can see uh, a dramatic sign of selection, particularly in that population, and you will not see that signature in other populations, like the uh, many African populations and East Asian populations do not have that signature. And the signatures le that's left in the European population is one that covers uh, quite a quite a distance within the genome, and that indicates to us that the selection was strong, um, and we're also able to find the onset of that selection, and we're able to date it to about 5,000 years ago, and this is the time that we think that dairying is a cultural um, innovation of began, and it's a, a great example of uh, what we call biocultural evolution, where there's cultural change, the invention, invention of dairying that's uh, being accompanied by biological adaptation. 
And I think this also is of great interest to our Boulder listeners because mm-hmm. of um, the alternative sorts of dietary communities that are prevalent here. And so uh-huh. I'm wondering, do you, which do you think came first? Is this a chicken and egg question? Can we say that dairying came first or possibly people popped up 5,000 years ago that um, for some kind of random reason retained the ability to digest lactose and then their offspring had a selective advantage? Uh, I think the the latter there, I think that uh, it's the nutritional advantage that milk uh, would provide, especially if you lived in a population where perhaps food wasn't consistent over the right, years right. and so forth. So any individual which had a mutation, um, a beneficial mutation that would allow this lactase gene to stay on and and at the same time having cattle available that were producing milk, um, they would go hand in hand. Right, um, right. They, you know, so and I my recollection, if, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection is mm-hmm. that the switch for that lactase gene is actually right. in an intron of another it, gene? Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. The actual switch for the lactase gene is not in the gene itself. It's within a different gene entirely, which is a little bit upstream of the, uh, the lactase gene. And what we call that uh, area that acts as the switch, we call it a, a regulatory region. And regulatory regions for one gene may actually be in another gene, okay? So genomes don't all make sense in terms of, uh, like if you were going to design one, <laughs> uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to design it in that way. Exactly, uh, but, but, but exactly. Case, it's kind of like our attic. There's all sorts uh-huh. of stuff stored up there that... Right might be useful someday, so we hang on to it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So in our last few minutes, mm-hmm. I would like you to talk about how this kind of new information, the molecular anthropological information, mm-hmm. has revolutionized anthropology. That is, getting genomic information from some of our extinct ancient cousins, like the Neanderthals, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Den- Denisovans? Uh, Denisovans, Denisovans, we generally say, but people say it different ways. Um, yeah, that's an extremely interesting area of our field. Um, uh, for over, since Neanderthals were discovered over 150 uh, years ago, it's been a quagmire and a point of speculation, much speculation as to whether we met and indeed interbred with them. Some people uh, suggesting we did and other people suggesting we didn't. In more recent uh, times, like in the 80s and into the 90s, with the beginning of uh, determination of mitochondrial DNA sequences and then other sequences, a a model emerged called the strict um, African uh, replacement model, and which indicated uh, or suggested that uh, modern humans migrated out of Africa about 50,000 years ago and completely replaced any archaic uh, hominins that had been living in Europe or Asia at the time. And we know Neanderthals had been living uh, for over 200,000 years ago in those regions. Um, But in 2010, a major, major breakthrough uh, took place, actually two major breakthroughs. Uh, The determination of a full genome, that is three billion bases of the Neanderthal genome, and simultaneously uh, uh, the determination of a genome from a bone from the Denisovan cave in southern Siberia 
Um, well, the researchers who did this work were Asante Pabo and his team, and they were expecting to see, okay, this is going to be Neanderthal DNA, a Neanderthal genome, but this genome was distinct. This was a distinct hominin, and um, it turns out that this uh, distinct hominin was named uh, the Denisovan or Denisovan uh, uh, hominin. We don't know what it looked like, actually, because the genome that it uh, was sequenced was taken from a pinky bone, a little tiny pinky bone, and all other uh, evidence we have is only two molars, which seem to be robust, but that's about all we have. So that's a genome in search of a sort of phenotype, and we're, we're hoping that someday that uh, the actual fossils of uh, Denisovans uh, are recovered and we're able to learn more about this. Um, so this is fascinating discoveries. Um, probably 30 years ago, we had no idea. It was just science fiction that we'd be able to get genomes out of these um, fossils. Uh, I'll call them fossils, but really they're, they're fossils which still contain some organic material, so it's possible to get DNA out of them. And I should mention that the Denisovan um, um, DNA that was gotten out of those particular fossils, it, there happens to be very good preservation up in that area because uh, we're talking about up in northwest Siberia, just above Kazakhstan and Mongolia. In those regions, the preservation of DNA is very good. But when you get to Neanderthal bones from other regions of Europe, uh, like in Cro uh, Croatia, um, you can see that uh, the DNA is, is present in much less um, uh, amount. So and I think our yeah. listeners would love to know more, so I am going to have to send them to your book. Oh, and, right. okay. <laughs> Because we have run out of time. Sure. Thank sure. you so much, Dr. Harris. Okay. That was Dr. Eugene Harris talking about his new book, Ancestors in Our Genome. Many thanks to Dr. Harris for telling us about how DNA sequence information can inform us about the evolutionary history of our species. It's fascinating to think that all of us carry bits and pieces of some ancient genes in all of our cells. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Kendra Kruger. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender and Kendra Kruger. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Juno Reactor. Visit our website at howonearthradio, that's all one word, dot org, to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bennett.